I like patients who can talk to me, who can tell me things little ones can't. You know, I kind of believe that most people have better things to do than to go to the ER, and that going to the ER is not, a, frankly, a very pleasant experience. From, from the time you hit the door, it's not a pleasant experience. Hello and welcome. Rick Bucata, Rachel Linder, and Greg Henry coming to you live. Uh, what is this? This is the July uh, 2021 issue of Risk Management Monthly. Welcome all. Um, we have a bunch of cases for you this month because I know people like cases and we've got a couple of articles and I want to welcome my colleagues, uh, Rachel in Scottsdale and Greg in Ann Arbor. Yes. Uh, welcome both to both of you. Anything exciting you. in your lives? Uh, other than risk management monthly? Uh, not a lot, but um, we never get the temperatures you guys do in the West. You know, we, we hear about this stuff where it's 97 degrees and all that guys that, nah, we're pretty good. You know, we're, we're 75 today and sweltering, but uh, we're okay. Well, you also mentioned offline that your heater went on today, Greg. Yes. yes. No, <laughs> you know, uh, last night the first. Yeah, you're just talking about on. the good stuff, you know. <laughs> yes. Uh, Rachel's know. probably 110 where you are. No, it's about 70. We have flash flood warnings, and it's been pouring oh. for about 12 hours. So it does rain in Arizona. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My son, is, uh, Dan, was is there, and he told me that it was coming down like crazy and that you had a windstorm yesterday that blew there's a saguaro a huge saguaro that's in the circle of his um um driveway area there and it came down oh, which is sad. really a shame because they you know it's a you know 100 year old saguaro yeah my two-year-old is terrified i don't think he's seen a storm before so it's pretty funny. I, I heard it was raining very, very hard. Well, geez, if we could just have some of that here. Yeah, yeah. no, no, we'll uh, we'll we'll ship some of it to you, Rick. It's not yeah, a problem. I, I, I propose that we stick a lake in, uh, pipe into Lake Michigan. You don't need all that water. You'll never yeah, miss it. God, that's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, Rachel right. looked up some cases today, and we're going to talk mm -hmm. about uh, them uh, now. So, Rachel, take it away. Sure. So these cases, there's not really any rhyme or reason as to why I chose these ones, except for when I went into the online legal database and Googled emergency medicine, these are the most recent ones that came up. And I tended to favor the ones that uh, were, were decided against the physician because I feel like they're just a little juicier. So these are all just kind of a slew of the most recent cases. So first one I'll talk about is a California case called Montez. In this one, a 19-day-old boy was brought into the ED by his parents for a subjective fever. He was born at 35 weeks, had been in the NICU for a week, had just gone home about a week previously, and they brought him in because they were they, they felt like he had a fever. They were worried. Uh, basically, they checked some labs at the, the first ED visit, and he was discharged with a diagnosis of hyperbilirubinemia. It's not really clear what labs he were, were tested, but that was his discharge. Parents went home, they brought him back within a few hours, and they said he's he's kind of stopping breathing occasionally, so he's having some apneic episodes. And I guess those were witnessed in the emergency department. Patient was there for, uh, it's unclear how much time, sent out with a diagnosis of colic in this 19-day-old. Um, brought back the next morning, essentially dead. Yeah. And 
you know, surprisingly, this case was settled for a hundred thousand dollars, but I've seen cases like this, you know, get go to verdict for tens of millions of dollars. And honestly, I, I wouldn't have been surprised if that would have happened here. Yeah, I, you know, having done this for I don't know forty five, fifty years. So when somebody's 19 years of 19 days of age or whatever this is, it's not a good it's never good news. Second, uh, whenever you have the parents bring back a second time at that age, you need to think about having a pediatrician come in or an admission uh, because there's something not right. Am I reading this wrong, guys? I mean, doesn't that always bother you in the pit of your soul? I like patients who can talk to me, who can tell me things little ones can't, and it frightens the daylights out of me. I'm surprised that this um, appears so egregious. Uh, I'm sure there's some details there that may modify this in favor of the physicians, but it's hard for me to conceive of uh, what transpired here. I mean, I would be really, really, really pissed if this was a relative of mine, because it sounds like this was grossly, grossly mismanaged. I mean, I don't know the case and I don't know the doctors involved, but this is not the way you handle a 19-day-old who is premature. This this kid is an automatic... Well, one of the things is there's this stu- studies that looked at kids where the parents said they felt warm at home, but in the ER, they didn't have a temperature. The guidelines for those is to treat them as if they had a fever. And, yeah. um, and, and so this kid at 19 days old gets a full septic workup, antibiotics and in the hospital uh, there's this, this is this is like a no-brainer. There's no thought in this case. This is just a no, no-brainer. And yep. these diagnoses are 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 absurd to be giving yeah. diagnoses. I'm a, I'm one of those guys who believes that the second visit is always a problem. I don't care if they're 19 years of age, 190 years of age. If they're in for the second time, rethink it. Do something because uh, it, it's never good. And when you've got a child this age, you know, pediatricians are allowed to get out of bed and come in and see cases I, I tell in you, the ER. I, I don't agree with that. I don't think a general pediatrician is going to do any better than a board certified emergency physician in this case, if not better, to tell you the truth. And so, well, uh, I have no idea who are the. But they ought to get somebody this. to come in, you know. No, this this kid gets. This is an automatic well, admission. admission. There's no right. thinking about this. This is a no-brainer. And yeah. I, I I wonder I wonder who were the people who cared for them. They could not possibly have been a board-certified emergency physician yet. Um, you know, I I know you don't get a lot of details when in these case summaries about the things that really would interest us in terms of what is what was the training of the people who took care of this this right. kid but but uh that case gave me chest pain as soon as you said what the you know the disposition yeah. was i was like my god yeah this one was hard to read and i think 
we could probably all understand at some point that natural desire to avoid doing the septic workup in a neonate. I mean, it's just not fun, but I think it's just one of those things. Patient comes in with measured fever, subjective fever. You have to own it and not talk yourself out of it because this is going to be, you know, the potential result and the legal result every single time. And I would say appropriately. Yeah, this is a, actually not a bad workup. <clears throat> You're bigger than they are at that age. Um, you need a little urine, some blood, and some cerebrospinal fluid, and and then consider what you're going to do. But pretty much these kids are not bad to manage, much easier than handling a 19-month-old. Um, th- th- this is a sad situation. I'm surprised, actually, that the settlement was $100,000. I mean, I know that... Old people are not worth any money. So if you're going to sue somebody for who's real old in terms of their future capacity to earn anything or that the like, the old and young don't don't get very much money when when cases are screwed up like this and there's a death involved. Um, I'm not quite sure why that is, but but it seems to be the case. Yeah. So just to answer your question from earlier, the person who saw this patient initially was an emergency medicine physician, MD, and then was subsequently seen by a pediatrician, I think, on the second visit, and also an MD. And those are both the people that were involved with the settlement. Well, I think they got off really easy. Really easy. I agree. Yep. All right. I'm going to move on to the next case. Uh, This case is Aldis. It's a case from Hawaii. In this one, a 49-year-old female was in the emergency department for reasons that are not made totally clear in the case, but at some point it was determined that she needed a central line. And so the resident tried to place a subclavian line and punctured her subclavian artery three times. It wasn't recognized immediately, and she subsequently decompensated, ended up needing an emergent sternotomy, developed renal failure, on dialysis, ended up on the transplant list. So when she got a little bit better, turned around and sued the resident specifically and the supervising physician saying the resident wasn't properly supervised. Um, They didn't monitor the patient well enough after the procedure to identify the complication in a timely fashion. And then interestingly, they specifically complained that they didn't use what they described as prevailing techniques of the medical community to place that central line. And I'm wondering if they're talking about ultrasound. It's unclear. Um, but they ended up with an, an over $10 million <clears throat> verdict for this case. By the way, no matter when you trained, at some point in your career, you're not going to be exactly where it is in that minute in time. All of us learn to play central lines, do all those sorts of things. Do you do it with a, uh, with a probe, with a this, with a that? We are all the victims of when we trained. And so I, I, I doubt that the basis of the case is just that you wanted a central line. The other thing is, why exactly did they want a central line? Um, we don't know that from this case. Um, but, uh, you know, the actual indications for those have actually kind of gone down a little bit, not gone up. 
Yeah, and and they don't argue that they didn't need a central line, but I think what you said, I have to raise some issue with that you're victims of when you trained, because I think, you know, from a legal perspective, it's very clear that you're not allowed to be victims of when you trained. You know, mm-hmm. you absolutely have to to evolve as the practice does. Right, but you know that is the case, that uh, as we go through and learn certain things, we have comfort with certain areas and procedures. Now, there are big shifts when we, you know, we put on different antibiotics, we do this, we do that. They all change as as we move along. But I think to some degree, we are the victims of when we trained. Well, that, that yeah, I have to agree with Rachel. Uh, the standard of care, I would argue now, is uh, an ultrasound-guided uh, central lines. And some people may say, well, not not everybody does that, but uh, I think it's I think it could be effectively argued that it is central line. There's no question that the literature says it is by far safer to do an ultrasound guided uh, central line. And one of the problems is is that if you I, we maybe all of well we we were doing it prior to when we knew this technique, but this is not a hard technique to find the the the, the vein versus the artery in terms of learning this. And so I think it I think the Rachel's right that I think that if you're still practicing emergency medicine and you're doing it by the you know uh, anatomic location kind of thing and you get into trouble, it doesn't matter if you don't get if you don't get in trouble you're okay. But if <laughs> yeah, you get into right. trouble. I think they're going to come after you, and rightly, rightly so. I think the uh, subclavian artery is not compressible behind because it runs behind the clavicle, so you you can't stop it. It's bleeding as much as it wants, kind of thing. And if you do it three times, it's going to bleed three times more than it wants. So um, it's it's a shame for sure. And man, this lady went downhill, and every complication you could get, she got. So. And 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 you would wonder what was the underlying process that came in for, and how much did that contribute to her to her negative outcome? But just yeah. losing a lot of blood probably is a great start. So and 10 one million? thing, yeah, ten million over. Um, one thing overall, I think is relevant is there's been a shift in the legal community, like courts, and how they decide standard of care. So decades ago. It was, each locality had its own standard of care. So you could say, oh, we don't use ultrasounds here, even though they use them in the big city. But slowly and more and more, courts have been shifting to more of a national standard. So if ultrasound is kind of the standard, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. It, it's more difficult to defend yourself by saying, hey, we've always done it this way at this hospital, because the shift is towards same standard for everybody. Yes, I would agree. Um, it's really difficult to make that case anymore because they're going to say, well, aren't there national courses on this uh, kind of thing? And uh, uh, do you have access to those? Do you have access to an ultrasound machine? Have you uh, tried to learn how to do this technique? They will get lots of people in to say this is not a difficult technique to learn. So it's kind of like, I I, I agree with you. There's a national standard, not, not a, 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 regional standard, although, you know, it's kind of interesting. There have been studies <laughs> about how do regions uh, handle certain conditions like, you know, uh, ductal carcinoma. How is it handled in one part of the country versus another part of the country? And surprisingly, uh, there are regional differences where it seems the way this is the way 
all of the doctors in this area kind of kind of learned they they graduated from these residencies stayed around locally kind of thing and that's the way they they did it that doesn't mean it's necessarily the wrong it may not be the optimal way but it's kind of like there is certainly regional differences in how care is rendered yeah absolutely the other thing I thought was interesting about this case, or at least noteworthy, is that you know it was a resident physician who did this procedure. But of course, the supervising physician is the one who's going to take the legal heat for it. And I think people know that, but maybe don't think about it all that much when they're assigning residents to do procedures <laughs> like this. Yeah, it sounds like there wasn't really any supervision if you got to stick the artery three times. Right. Yep. Okay, I'm going to move on to the next case. So Fuentes, this is a New York case. So in this one, a man came into the ED, he had urinary retention, back pain, and he was known to be HIV positive. He says that while he was there, two different physicians saw him. Neither one of them performed a neuro exam. Nobody considered talking to neurology. Nobody ordered any imaging of his spine. And he subsequently developed complications of a presumed epidural abscess. He, this also ended in a $10 million verdict. Uh, bladder, uh, I thought, I thought this was going to be a quarter equina case to tell you the truth, um, because of the bladder retention, but maybe, and maybe it even was a quarter equina yes. case and it's caused by a epidural abscess. So, um, maybe it was, it uh, was that because if you have somebody, do you know the age of the patient, uh, Rachel? Um, I don't think I know on this one. Well, no. you know, if it's if a young person, if it's a you know forty year old or a fifty year old, well, they're not allowed to have you know bladder retention kind of thing. <laughs> that's you know if right. you're seventy year old and you got a prostate the size of a grapefruit, that's another matter. But forty <laughs> fifty year old, no, no, it's not allowed. And so you, yeah. this is like a, a a red light blinking in your face, neurologic exam, neurologic exam, and. There are just so many of these cases of spinal epidural abscess that are that are just missed, and they never end well at at all because there's immediately there's a delay in the, when the diagnosis. It may be made on a second or third visit, but that doesn't matter because it's getting worse and worse and worse, and the ability to recoup neurologic function goes down with uh, as the delay occurs. Yeah, whenever whenever you've got a patient of this age who you have to put a tube in the bladder to get them to pee, ask some other questions. I mean, th this really does sound like there's neurologic involvement as well as whatever was causing the blockage. But when you think about it, how many people have you seen of this age that you had to put a catheter into well we don't know the age but i, I but i'm assuming that this is uh, a a younger person not somebody who's prostate 90, would be right. the, uh, the, the the issue I, it's, you know, it's really a shame actually that uh, because sometimes the spinal epidurosis are super super subtle but this doesn't sound like it was super subtle because they, but that the idea of connecting the dots between, you know, urinary retention and, you know, corticoina or something causing some compression on the, the uh, nerves, you know, it's a shame actually. Yeah, I think this is another one that's hard to defend, but I thought it was worth talking about because it's so common when you go through these legal cases, there are so, so many of missed caught equina. And 
I was trying to think about why that is. And I think one of the reasons, at least in places I've worked, is there's an extra hurdle to getting these MRIs. You know, you mm-hmm. either have to get a neuro consult first or neurosurgery, or you have to bring in the team because it's after hours. It's not like a CT scan that we get on every other patient. And that's probably influencing decision-making much more than it should. Um, and then, you know, along with this, it sounds like neither doctor actually documented a neuro exam. So if you're going to send this high-risk patient home, like you better be really sure that your documentation is in order. So Exactly. The other thing is, Last time I checked, the neuro exam isn't that hard. It's not that complex. You can write it down, and it's something for the next doctor to follow, too, when they come in. You know, that is a problem. Examination should not go out of style (laughs) with, you you know, COVID and all that sort of thing. No, we still have to examine people. I think you're giving more credit than is due, uh, Rachel, I, I, you have to think of this diagnosis to pursue it. And I yes. think the majority of times this diagnosis doesn't even enter people's <clears> minds. <throat> and so the idea of doing a neurologic exam implies that you, th- you understand here that there may, may be some compromise of the, of the spinal nerves. And, 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 uh, and we know, well, we should know that if this idea of that this <clears> may be a <throat> spinal epidural abscess pops into your head, um, you're the boss. That spinal epidural abscess does need to be visualized sooner rather than later. And if you don't do it, you're going to look like a goat. And so, it, 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 whatever it takes, every hospital, you know, especially you know, you know, good size hospitals. Now, I must admit, I don't even know, honestly, at some of these commuter hospitals whether there's an MRI tech on call. In that case, that patient gets transferred to a place where MRI can be done. Uh, uh, quickly. So, if you don't think of this diagnosis, because this is a, this is a, I would almost say a rare diagnosis, but it is missed so consistently that it, it's the standard of care to miss the this diagnosis on the first visit. To miss it on the first visit, <laughs> it really is, and it's big dollars. And and everybody who's self-insured is trying to get their doctors to kind of enter this in their differential and. And and hone in on that temperature. It would be interesting to know what the person's temperature was in this um, case. Although they had HIV, so you know you can make the argument that that right. it may be normal and that yeah. doesn't help you. Yeah, right. Um, no, but you get this bladder in front of you kind of thing, which is, is that, that's the uh, not so subtle finding. But sure, yes, absolutely. Yeah. All right, I'm move on to the next case, another California case. And this one involved a 70-year-old. He was riding his motorcycle, uh, somehow flipped over the handlebars, landed on his head, which was helmeted. He, you know, felt okay, went home, didn't seek care. But two weeks later, he went in because he said he'd had a headache since that time, although it was getting a little bit better, and his leg hurt where his motorcycle had fallen on him. So he initially was seen by a PA who offered a head CT reportedly, which the patient declined. Um, there's no documentation of that discussion. Patient went home, worsened, was found to have a large subdural, eventually herniated, and was left in a persistent vegetative state. So the family sued specifically for failure to obtain informed refusal. And how much money was involved, does it say? I actually I actually think this one was did was found in favor of the physicians. 
and the PA. Mm. Wow. Wow. Um, well, it's also easy to be a Monday morning quarterback, but a guy who's, who gives that a history of falling off his motorcycle, you know, they're not, that's, if it was moving, do we get a fair amount of force generated here? And just because you have a, a helmet on doesn't mean that your height doesn't quickly stop um, right. and stuff happens inside. I mean, maybe you don't break your skull, but you can still shake your head around and brain around. And just the fact that you came in, you know, I kind of believe that most people have better things to do than to go to the ER and that going to the ER is not a, frankly, a very pleasant experience from, from the time you hit the door, it's not a pleasant experience. Um, and so, um, and I bet you this guy, you know, rarely, rarely, rarely saw a doctor kind of thing. And, you know, you would have your antennas up. It's so easy to check the CT box. I mean, what are you, what are you doing? I mean, protecting who are you protecting by, by doing that in a, head injury case and you know this idea of chronic subdurals and well so in this case the the acute subdurals yeah what was the time interval between the incident two weeks yeah yeah that's that is an unusual time frame in my experience and uh having dealt with a lot of neuro cases um it's a strange, what it probably did was bleed and stop and bleed and stop. And those particular kinds of subdurals are pretty easy to tell on the CT scan because you actually have different layers and movement. Right. And I'm there's has to be something like that that happened. I'm surprised having told that story, uh, somebody didn't ask that question. And, and um, it's, it's not a good thing to have a 70-year-old guy who's had a head injury not be uh, properly scanned. Yeah. So, you know, I think one of the um, issues with these prolonged or delayed evaluations is I trained in the era of decision rules. And there's no decision rule for evaluating somebody two weeks after their head trauma. And so you right. can't lean on that and have it tell you what to do. But I think general rule, an elderly person with a high-risk mechanism who's complaining of a headache <laughs> after trauma gets a scan. Wait, 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 you El- child. Elder, did you say elderly? <laughs> elderly. <laughs> elderly, excuse me. Yeah. You know. All I right. didn't say frail. Yes. Um, <laughs> or, or demented, just elderly. But, right. but yes, this, exactly. case, this case I really thought was interesting because he was offered a CT and he declined it. But that's what they were sued for, is not getting informed refusal. And, you know, there really wasn't any discussion about it. And I was on here a few months ago and talked all about documenting informed consent and what that means. And it's not just a signature and it's not just a line saying patient offered and declined. It's really a discussion about the conversation so that somebody reading it understands that you really tried to convince them, you, you communicated the risks, the patient had decision-making capacity, which I think is potentially questionable in this case. And one of the other things I've seen is that the patient felt that they were welcome to return and change their mind at any point. Yes, yes. And, and believe me, um, when, there's, when there's going to be a lawsuit take place, how you documented that discussion does count. I told him, I brought his wife who was in the waiting room in. I brought his kids in, you know, all these other things. 
that uh, should be a part of that chart. Now, we can't force people who are are compass medics in front of us uh, from doing certain things, but we better make sure that a jury would understand we were concerned and we offered him the standard of care. Yep, absolutely. Well, again, I guess I, I guess I'm just in a cranky mood today. Uh, but you can get a person to do just about anything you want by painting the picture that is going to result in the outcome you want. And we're not talking about, you know, well, sir, we'd like to disembowel you for surgery today and that kind of thing. No, we're, we're, we're talking about a study that takes 10 minutes most of the time is walking over and finding that scan machine and laying down. They flick that button on and you're done. Thank you very much. And no pain. So, <laughs> no, it's painless. So why would somebody object to this when they, in fact, went to the ER for a head injury, for crying out loud? I believe that this doctor really, for some reason, um, you know, we're going to offer you, would you like a head CT, sir? Huh? That's not the, that's what, that's not, you wouldn't do that. Would you like this? You said, I recommend this. I strongly recommend this. It's dangerous if we don't do it. If you do that, you know, are they going to say no to that? That was the reason they came in. So I, I don't give, I don't put much faith in this fact that this person was offered and declined. Yeah. Whenever anything's going in this direction. And of course, in my career, I had some of those cases. I want the family. I want the family in there as witness what I'm trying to do. You know, we want to take your your father here and get a test that is a hundred percent safe and and uh, isn't painful. And we need this test. You need the whoever the family member is on your side in this discussion. I would also argue that even if that had all been documented, so the patient just was refusing for no good reason, but you documented amazingly. If I were the lawyer taking this case, I would then turn around and argue this patient didn't have decision-making capacity. You know, we know that he essentially herniated two days later. So you can document all you want about your discussion, but if you don't have a robust conversation or discussion about capacity, it's meaningless. Right. Well, capacity is important. But it sounds to me like in this case, you haven't brought up anything that shows that he didn't have reasonable capacity. I mean, he's talking to the doctor, right? He's uh, he's came, came in with his family. Well, maybe, he's answering questions. Maybe um, he did come in with his family, but just the fact that he went through the registration process and gave him his name and address but, and here's my social security number. Thank you very much. And. But all it takes is a couple family members after the fact saying, no, he was confused when he was in there. You know, that's all it takes in front of a jury for them to question whether he had decision-making capacity. And and it happens in cases. No, okay. I I would agree with that. You know, Greg, usually, Greg, I'm surprised you didn't jump in here with your your story about how you get uh, people to sign uh, for things that they don't want to do when you bring the (laughs) wife in and say – you want to do that yourself or should well, I do it? No, no, you well, can do it. We, we, we can do this, but if, if, uh, if you start out by bringing the family member in and saying, you, you know, uh, you never say they could die because if you say that, 
other people in the family thinking, yeah, he's got he's got big big cash, big this. It's not so bad. But if you say the word disabled, you get everybody who wants you to do the study because disabled means. You know, the wife's got to push him around in a wheelchair for the next five <laughs> years or something like that. Uh, disabled is the term because that frightens everybody. So let's prevent disability here. Not yes. death. Yeah, yes, we don't problem. do this test and he goes into a coma. Somebody will need to be wiping his butt at home, ma'am. So uh, we don't want you to have to get into that situation. Yeah. So she says, Henry, you're getting the test. Yeah. yeah. All right. Enough of that. <laughs> All right. Moving on. Cullimore. This is a Utah case. So in this case, a 51 year old went to the emergency department with abdominal pain after a colonoscopy. It doesn't sound like any imaging was obtained, but the emergency physician called the gastroenterologist who did the procedure, who basically said, go ahead and send the patient home. So ED physician sent the patient home. He came back later, was found to have a colonic perforation and multiple abscesses. So he sued both the ED doc and the gastroenterologist for a little over $300,000 was the verdict. But what I thought the most interesting part was um, the jury found both the gastroenterologist and the physician at the emergency physician at fault, 60% for the gastroenterologist, 25% for the physician, 15% for the patient. Uh, contributory negligence. We, we have gone into all of the, all of the permutations of, of that. Uh, in the definitions, but th this case is like, well, well, what are you thinking if somebody comes in for abdominal pain after a colonoscopy? I mean, what, what, what's in your mind? I mean, uh, can you, and can you imagine a hole in the colon and all the crap that's coming out that, you know, is going into your peritoneal and retroperitoneal areas? It's like, the consequences are substantial. They're horrible uh, kind of thing. You're going to need a bowel resection and you may need a colostomy and all this other stuff. And all it take was check the box for the CT scan. It's like, what, what, what's the big deal? You don't even need a CT scan in this case because what you're going to see if you shoot a plain film of the abdomen Greg, is free air. They don't do that anymore, Greg. Oh, oh okay. There's no point in anything. <laughs> They don't do neck x-rays. They they don't do yeah. pretty soon. They're not going to be doing chest x-rays. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's probably true. Yeah. Well, I thought what this really drove home is that emergency physicians can't hide behind the consult service. It, you, you know, bet. you can't you can't pass the buck. No, absolutely not. Because just because they don't have any in, in this case, they have no more expertise than you have. It, it It's a whole or not a whole kind of thing. And it's like. So I wouldn't get any solace because a gastroenterologist said, send him home. It's like he took the time to come into that ER for crying out loud. He could have been watching, you know, Gunsmoke or something like that on TV. <laughs> no, but he had, to, but he, but he, he was, uh, something's going on or maybe his family thought was something was going on. What, what is the threshold? Cause I can tell you in the other cases, the threshold for doing a CT is, seems to be so Minimal. Small. Like, Minimal. What, you know, you can't, can't, can't walk out of the building without getting a CT or something. And Rachel, just to bring you, uh, the, the reference to Gunsmoke is a 40 to 50 year old reference to a TV program. But don't worry. Yeah, yeah it's it's yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah. 
that and that did take place in Tombstone, Arizona, by the way, Rick. So uh, I, I think this is the kind of case where, hello, I just had a procedure. Here's the known complications of the procedure. Yeah, this that is they a, wouldn't shoot a film is just really odd this is to a me. Rare, 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 rare complication. Yeah, my, you, you, no, no way. This is number one on the list. This is number like, one on the list. What are you thinking yeah. about? Guy's got a stomach ache or something? Yeah, yeah, and that wouldn't do you any good. Well, you know, it's just too easy to be a Monday morning quarterback, and so I kind of think that you know we got to give these people some of the benefit of the doubt. But even then, this is a slam dunk. Yeah, this write this the, write the check. The story isn't good off the top, but then again, we've all had that patient who wouldn't do reasonable things, uh, which we suggested, and and we had to come up with another program. But I think this is the kind of case that if he didn't want to have the study, um. You could you could warn the family. You could bring them in. You could say, "Well, we got to admit them. We got to do this. We got to do that." Make it difficult for the patient to to leave without what they need to have done. I mean, sometimes you you've got to be the obstruction in the in the way to for them leaving the department. Exactly. Where's my clothes? <laughs> where is this man's clothes? Oh we no, we hid, you're not going to go hidden, out naked, sir, are you? You know, we've hidden clothes many times. We've done lots of things, and well, we I sent think them to the laundry. That's okay. Yeah. One starch, no starch. Yes. You know, we'll be back in about a couple hours. Right. All exactly. right. Moving on. Um, next case, Reynolds. This has not very many details, but I feel still think some good teaching points. This was a 45 year old police officer went to the emergency department um, after. He was exposed to medication and developed lip and tongue swelling and hives. It's not clear what they did for him in the emergency department, but they did not administer an EpiPen or give him an EpiPen. And he went home and subsequently died of anaphylactic shock. So this case was actually decided 10 to 2 in favor of the physicians, although I think inappropriately based on the information we have, which is not much. And I thought it was worth talking about because we know from from lots of previous studies that emergency physicians continue to underdiagnose and undertreat anaphylaxis. And I feel like people are just setting ourselves up for this over and over again. Well, I guess one of the questions is, is if somebody's had a anaphylactic reaction, is it the standard of care now to dispense uh, or prescribe an EpiPen? I would say it is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, and and I, I'm not sure where that comes from as far as data, but it certainly is cheap. It certainly is well, better than doing not nothing. Cheap. No, it's not cheap. Well, what uh, is it? Six hundred yeah, well, bucks? If you want the brand name version, it was 600 bucks. Yeah, well, that's the brand name. If you want the generic version, it's the same drug, but it's probably a couple hundred. But And, and uh, I think there's this issue of there, there must have been some evolution between when this be, became standard, as you think it is, Rachel, and when it wasn't. Because I can tell you that um, uh, I would say sometime in the last 10 years, this there's a transition. Because 10 years ago, this was not in any way the standard to give t- uh, take-home uh, epi. Even though epifens were around then, 
it yeah. wasn't it just it wasn't done and it, and people didn't talk about it and they they do now so there's something happened over time and so i guess you know this would be one of those things where you need some experts to determine if in fact this is the standard of care because uh did our did our doctors get off here yeah they got off but I think it was partly they didn't even give Epi in the ED despite having, you know, criteria oh, for anaphylaxis. Well, well, that's a different story. Uh, I mean, all of the societies who talk about guidelines for anaphylaxis, who really don't see anaphylaxis patients, but we see them in the <laughs> ER, keep on telling us over and over and over and over the drug is epi the drug is epi it's not steroids it's not antihistamines it's not this or that it's epi 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 and you can give those other things but this is kind of like a no-brainer and this guy had uh, the the hives and the tongue thing you know it's like uh, um i think so, that would be if he didn't do that i think that would be uh and there was a negative outcome i don't think it's about the prescription of uh of uh, an EpiPen, it's because basically the treatment in the ER was not where it should have been. Yeah, it sounds to me like this was less than aggressively treated right from the beginning. Here's two I, I, mean, I mean, taking home an EpiPen, I wouldn't want a guy who I was still worried about going home and having to worry about you know, his EpiPen. I, I think I that's think, I, th yeah. I think that's a really good point. I mean, if if somebody is in your ER who's had an anaphylactic reaction, the the, uh, the business about going home is can you get back here quickly? I mean, uh, is there any transportation issues? Do you near, live uh, you know nearby? Because there's there is some idea of this kind of like well maybe it will recur or after they get their shot in the emergency department. You know, it just happens hang around for a while um, to see how they do. But I think that an EpiPen, first of all, it's 10 o'clock at night. Where are they going to get the EpiPen? They don't know how to use a thing. You know, it's like, I think that is not the, that's for so, like a week from now or a month from now, but it's not for this spell, I don't think. So I don't know. I don't know. First of all, there haven't been any cases related to this that we know of, um, but I would say it's definitely standard of care that you give an EpiPen prescription. And furthermore, both the, the places that I've worked, we also provide training for how to use an EpiPen at that visit for their anaphylaxis. Say, mm -hmm. oh, you know, we're diagnosing the anaphylaxis. We give you all the treatment. We watch you for a while. We're going to teach you how to use an EpiPen, and we're going to give you the prescription in hand and send you to the 24-hour pharmacy to get it done. Uh, that's been, the, you know, the standard that I was taught. And I would argue, you know, it, a court would – a jury could easily find that that's the standard that should be applied in a case like this. Well, that, I, that, I haven't used that word should. should I say a jury could easily find. Yeah, that could, should be applied. could be applied. We don't we don't have any cases looking at this that I know of. I did a kind of a series of anaphylaxis related malpractice lawsuits. Um, I think it ended up in West Gem or something a couple of years ago. And we looked at 30 cases. But but by far the most common reason for the lawsuit was failure to recognize or treat anaphylaxis in a timely manner. And interestingly, the most common um, cause of anaphylaxis was IV contrast. Really? Yeah. And so radiologists and emergency medicine physicians were both frequently named because the patient developed anaphylaxis under their care. They didn't recognize it. 
didn't treat it appropriately and the patient might not have bad outcome. Well, you know, this, those must have been a lot of them must be very old cases because there's, you know, there, I don't think that you're using iodinated contrast now or so it's like, I would be surprised of how many recent ones there were on those cases, but right. who, who knows, but interesting that that was the, I would think it was something that people ate. One uh, of the other interesting themes that came out of that um, was that one of the ways that it was administered inappropriately, it wasn't just that you didn't give epi, it's that it was given intravenously, you know, at the same dose as they were giving it IM, and that was killing people or causing cardiac arrest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you turn that person into an adrenergic dynamo. In Di- dynamo, exactly. <laughs> I will say those were mostly the radiologists. Yeah, that, that I'm surprised they can get into heart, a vein. They must have had heart rates of 180 years. They had the vein for their contrast. Yeah, exactly. Oh, geez. All right, I'll keep going. Uh, this case, so Willette, this is a Florida case. And this one, a man came to the ED. He was complaining of left-sided numbness, slurred speech, and a headache. He had a non-concat head CT, was normal. His symptoms went away. We don't know in how long. And the emergency physician diagnosed him with dehydration and heat stroke, discharged him. Same day, he came back with the same deficits and you know had an acute stroke, with ended up having permanent deficits. Mm-hmm. That that case ended with a about nine hundred thousand dollar verdict. Nine hundred thousand dollars. By the way, what what did they say? Uh, with his symptoms went away, they should have done with. Him this patient let's say well, his symptoms went away presumably he they, they feel that they should have diagnosed this as a tia mm-hmm. and, and it's not clear if they completely went away but then you know not all patients with tia should be discharged home well that's no. kind of an interesting question it's kind of like we don't know um, what to give them though did so they they're going to get their, their aspirin or another what is that other drug that they use for these things Flavix? Statins? No, um, yeah, I think it's just too... I think uh, is gone. It's coarse. I forget, you know, I'm blocking it kind of thing. But um, so the issue there is, well, uh, what are you going to do in the hospital? Uh, It's kind of like, are you going to wait for them to stroke or are you going to just observe them for some period of time? Because if, in fact, the symptoms do resolve, which we know people, people you know people have had these kinds of things for ever and ever yeah there is this kind of risk and it is and it may come on the next day or two but um what does the hospital get to do while you're there i so it'll take you to the to the suite to give you a tpa or you know take your clad out faster so nine hundred thousand dollars is kind of like how old was this person uh, I don't think we know. Um, well, I guess the question is, Rachel, what do you do for people who have TIAs? Well, so at places I've worked, we'll use a risk score like the ABCD2 to determine, you know, what their risk of recurrent stroke is. And for those that are low risk, they do get discharged with close outpatient follow-up where I believe they get MRIs and then they get medically optimized. And I think that's usually antiplatelets, antistatins, they'll do, or statins, they'll do a TEE and make sure there's no cardioembolic source versus the people who by whatever risk score we're using are determined to be high risk are generally the ones who get admitted for all of that workup. 
Well, that makes sense. Okay. I so, give up. <laughs> I <don't. laughs> All right. Anyway, I just, uh, I, I wasn't, I didn't read this case and think, obviously, this guy should have been admitted, but it seemed like the documentation provided did not support their decision to discharge him. It could have been more robust to say this person is low risk. You know, this is why we think it's not a stroke. Mm hmm. So. All right. All no right. more thoughts on that one? No, no, no. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll move on. Uh, Lockhart. This is a Georgia case. In this one, a patient came to the emergency department after she attempted suicide by drug overdose. They tried to place a central line in her IJ, but she was too combative. So they ended up placing a femoral line. Unfortunately, they, they placed an arterial femoral line. And over the next 24 hours, the patient's leg became ischemic and died, and she had to have it amputated. So... Yeah. They sued the emergency physician who placed it, and then the doctors who took care of her in the hospital for not recognizing it. And the emergency physician tried to argue that um, her, her blood pressure was too low for the usual confirmatory testing to indicate that the line was arterial. Despite all that, the uh, jury verdict, uh, there was a verdict for $4.7 million. Hmm. Um. I guess it would be helpful to know the the indication for a, a central line. Um, if there, if she was in shock or something like that, and they couldn't get a peripheral line, or it was pretty severe or something like that, well, beta blocker overdose a, or something. Yeah, maybe it was yes. maybe it was indicated kind of thing. But uh, I just think that uh, it's it's unfortunate. I I would think that if you're in the femoral artery that blood would come out the tubing. Yeah, pretty yeah. fast, and, as and a if, matter of fact. And if it, you yeah. weren't, it wouldn't come out the tubing. So I could see how potentially how you could get confused if the blood didn't come out of the, out of the tubing. Um, you know, as, as I was reading this, I was imagining the chaos of the scene, this super combative patient who's apparently so hypotensive that, you know, you can't even get a blood pressure on her. She's not letting you get by her neck, and so you're, trying to do something for her and get this femoral line in. Like, I think these, it sounds like these physicians were kind of doing everything they could. And unfortunately this happened. And my, you know, reading it from the course perspective, my sense is they have no appreciation or they don't care at all how chaotic that room was. The standard of care is the same for that patient as it is for the like docile little UTI. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily appropriate, but I, I there, it just doesn't come out in the court case that that was pure chaos. Like the standard of care doesn't change. Yeah, that's a, that's unfortunate because I think that um, the number of patients that come into an emergency department are not really particularly uh, specifically specified per hour and that there is the possibility for a surge that cannot be addressed in your community hospital because you only have one doctor in the ER or something like that and you're doing the, the best you best can. You can. And, most people on a, on a jury would say, you know, we had this bus accident of hemophiliac patients where it all also came in and I was doing the best I, can, I could. And it's unfortunate that this occurred. And then I didn't see the signs of a, of a, a an arterial tap. And, um, it would, it, it sounds to the, it would sound to me like the jury could say, you know, well, he did, he did the best she could, he could under the circumstances. And, um, I think that that clearly would be a mitigator in the nor in the real world. 
And I think if you had like a true disaster circumstance, that's true. But for a lot of these, it's not, you know, it's just a mini disaster, but you, it doesn't really come across in court. It's really not a valid defense to say, hey, this patient was thrashing and crazy and she had a sick neighbor. Like, I, I think it just doesn't work. And, you know, reading this, it was apparent that it, that defense didn't work, even though it maybe should have. Yep. Yep. Guys, you, you know, we, we lose some, we win some. You know, um, I'm surprised that yeah, they took and, this and up to court, given the um, odds against physicians. You have to you be know, a we all have had lawyer. those nights when you you've got so many things going on that it isn't simple. I mean, you could ask the question: Did she really need a central kind of line or a big line of that of that type? Uh, are there other things they could have done? But to think that there aren't going to be bad situations, we've all had them, where could we do exactly what we uh, would have done if we'd had one patient and, you know, help coming in at the exact same time? The answer is no. I mean, sometimes we have to do the best we can. And I have other cases, we, but, oh, sorry, go ahead, Rick. That's why we pay malpractice insurance. There you go. Yeah. I was going to say, I have other cases, but if you want to do your stories. Or your well, you know, I, I like I like these. Um, I don't know how in, interesting my stories are compared to yours. Um, I found two articles that relate to what we do. One was in, about frivolous lawsuits, and the other one was about state board actions and how to protect yourself against, uh, against them. Um, you know, I could do one of them and, and save save the other. And then if we have some space, we could fill in with a, another case or two. Then let me do this thing about frivolous lawsuits. OK, and you guys can comment and we can. I, I think that the fact that we've done these cases is just terrific because we were frankly way behind in our cases. And uh, we made some good, good headway on cases today, I think. And it's great to know that you're a source of these cases because you have access to these databases and this and the like. So I'm sure there's more where that came from. Plenty more. Um, so this was an article entitled um, "Frivolous Lawsuits: Still a Big Threat to Doctors." That's a question mark at the end. That I didn't. I, I couldn't say that right. Still a big threat to doctors. <laughs> yeah. That, that. That's the question. By this is was in uh, Medscape in October of 2020, um, and Alicia Gallegos, who wrote this article, uh, she had a bunch of points that uh, we can discuss as, as you would like. They they talk about in legal practice, a frivolous claim is defined as one that lacks a supporting legal argument or any factual basis. No, you know that sounds reasonable to me, um, but we're going to see that. People don't necessarily agree with that. Uh, a claim issued with the intent of disturbing, annoying, or harassing the opposing party can also be described as legally f frivolous. Well, you know, I don't agree with that at all. When you sue somebody, it's intended that you annoy them and harass them and <laughs> and disturb them. Kind of thing. It's like, yeah, uh, yeah. You want you want your revenge, damn it. So um, I don't know that I agree with that. Physicians describe frivolous lawsuits as those in which there is no attribution, attributable negligence, and they bring up the fact 
and we and we reviewed this study that about 37% of cases reviewed by David Souter at Stanford Law said that, that there was no negligence involved in the cases that were brought forward and and that sounds like it's like holy smokes but that is comes up all the time that there's a substantial subset where a third party physician will say there's absolutely no negligence in this case uh let me give you an, another one here. These people say the reason there's no frivolous lawsuits, or not many, is because it's just bad business. There's there's no money in frivolous lawsuits, and to initiate a frivolous lawsuit, you've got to do work. You've got to pay experts. You've got to spend all this money, and and uh, people are not going to be particularly interested in giving you money if you have a claim that is so easily uh, tramped down. So when they say it's the most important part of a lawsuit for lawyers is picking the winners. You know, they they don't want any kind of marginal <laughs> cases. They want bad babies and, you know, straightforward kind of stuff as much as, <clears throat> much as possible, except if, you know, that maybe these lawyers are just kind of starting out or something like that. But they're going to lose these cases if, in fact, they truly are uh, frivolous. Um, in a, in a review of 18,000 claims, one study found that 65% were dropped, suggesting that they may have all been frivolous. Well, you know, I don't, I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think that over time, you, you may be learned by, you know, listening to facts of the uh, involved people that, in fact, what you thought was frivolous, uh, I mean, a, a meaningful case, really, really is not um, they talk about the idea of having physician panels reviewing cases for merit before they could go forward. Uh, 28 states have those panels. Uh, you can take two points of view on that. One of them is you should have your right to sue. No, no panel should get in the way kind of thing. Um, it's your prerogative to sue. And others say, no, this, we're gonna, our, our doctors, who may be prejudiced, obviously, say there there is no um no reason that you could sue here that you would that patient wasn't hurt by your actions etc any thoughts about the this idea of having certificates of merit for cases yeah i think it it just delays the inevitable um we've tried that in michigan we've tried it other places sort of the bottom line is this i've been looking at cases since 1974. um does it go up and down yes it does but the process in general basically works and what happens is particularly now during the covid era a lot of people are willing to come together and settle cases with real merit uh, to get some money now to get the situation going. I, you know, I think I think that uh, it depends on where you are, what state, all these sorts of things. But I think in general the system works, and every attempt to come up with real with this shortcut and that shortcut, you know, eventually. People want their day in court, and uh, I, I don't think that's so bad. What do you think, Rachel? Certificates of merit. So I like the idea in principle, 
because I guess I don't necessarily agree that people have the right to their day in court because it's not like they're just showing up in court alone. You know, it's 50 people wasting their time if it is right. indeed a waste of time. But, you know, I think those the merit boards can can easily be problematic. See if, say if you put a bunch of physicians on there and they say nothing has merit, you know, then we've kind of broken the system. Um, so I think it's maybe a bit of a slippery slope, but I like the idea in principle because I think there is a lot of value in keeping frivolous lawsuits out. You know, I don't think physicians who are the subject of a frivolous lawsuit are much less traumatized than those who are the subject of a, you know, a lawsuit that has merit. I think it's equally traumatic right. for them. Well, I think, it, I think it's traumatic for both. I think that, uh, I would feel personally much worse if, in fact, I was the cause of real harm. But you might than, feel just mad if you're getting sued yeah, for, by other, some patient who's yeah. a jerk. One, yeah. one is I feel bad because I did it, and the other one's I'm mad because I didn't do it. Yeah. You know? So, uh, Rachel, Rachel, have you been sued yet? No. Mm. Um, your any day, day is now, coming. though, right? I yeah, know. That's right? what I hear. Well, your day is coming, and uh, <laughs> physicians do look at it differently after they've gotten into the process. Well, uh, that, that reminds no me. Theory. Right. You got to talk to Gita Pensa if you've been sued and you're having some problems with it because Gita will help you out a lot. Uh, she's the one that has this blog specifically to help physicians who are going through this process to deal with it. Uh, what do you guys think about consent to settle clauses in your insurance uh, policy? Um, where uh, th it's really the determinant of the insurance company whether we're settling or not. It's it's our money, and we're we're going to determine we're going to settle or not. This is not well, about your honor. This is about money. I was the president of a physician insurance company, and uh, we told people right up front, um, "You're not in the best position to to decide." what we're going to do or not going to do, we are. And if it's going to be our shared money, we're going to make some decisions here you don't like. But the bottom line is those same physicians, if you said to them, okay, we can settle this for $75,000, anything above that, you get to go to the bank and take out the money and pay it. Are you willing to do that? Uh, so, so it's not it's not a simple question, Rick. And and when it's not your money, people do different things. Um, we we often found that when they were presented with those options of we can cover this entire thing and be done today, I can sign the paper, or if you want to continue this, you know, it's not just the money. It's the interruption on your life and everything else that goes on. This isn't simple. And uh, usually when they were presented with those options, they were willing to settle. <laughs> yeah, the option to pay over over what you're willing to, that you can settle for is uh, it's your option. It's kind of like you're feeling lucky, punk. Right. It's, it's like it's a big, big gamble kind of and, thing. And believe me, I had to deal with certain physicians who didn't listen, who couldn't hear reason. They had become irrational on the case. Um, 
Uh, I'll tell you, when I look at the number of physicians who went back to law school and I ask what prompted this, well, I got sued. That story is told time and and again. You know, they want to kind of get back at this. Sometimes you need somebody less personally involved to make settlement decisions. You know, there was a study of uh, patients from USAC, USAC Care Solutions, of uh, uh, their cases over about a three or four year period involving about a thousand physicians seeing patients and 11% of them got sued in this study that went 3.4 years long. And so that's kind of like a, a little bit of a frightening number in terms of 11% of the doctors in, in 3.4. Well, what if your career is 25 years? What's the likelihood of you getting sued? The numbers are obviously going to, to go up. Are they going to go up eight eightfold? Um, you know, maybe. But um, so it suggests that the likelihood of you getting sued is is, is quite high over, over a, a career. Um, but they presented all of this good news that, you know, the amount of money that was actually paid out on the behalf of these doctors was nominal and the vast majority of cases were dropped. And, you know, yes, they went through the grief, but on, on the other, on the other side of the ledger, not much money <clears throat> went out. Although frankly, it's not your money now it's their money, the insurance company's money. And you still have to go through the intellectual grief of going through the process. Right. Exactly. Well, there's this idea that, you know, insurance companies settle uh, uh, and they settle real easily. And if we, if we file a claim, they'll just pay us money to go away kind of thing. And uh, this article said yeah, that may have been true, but it's not true anymore. And um, insurance companies don't want to have the reputation that they that they settle um, in, um, these claims that are minimally or not meritorious at all. Um what about countersuits uh, for, um, you know, the idea of you, I'm suing you because you hurt me and you claimed damages, but it, but it was, they were unfounded. Um, the claims usually relate to abusive process, negligence, defamation, invasion of privacy, and lastly, infliction of emotional distress. I would think that would be kind of high on the list to tell you the truth. Um, did you lose any money? Well, no, I didn't miss any shifts or anything like that. Did you get divorced? No, I didn't get divorced. It's just I was very stressed out. Let me defend the plaintiff's bar here for just a second. They're in the business where part of the outcome is some emotional stress to the doctor who they sued. I mean, we took that on when we became doctors. It's a part of the process. And, and they can't be put in a position where they, they sort of look at every doctor's psyche before they sue. That's, that, that really is, would be uh, the wrong direction to think about these cases. The last point that they made is that to prove mal malicious prosecution is not easy. No. Uh, a claim... They have to state that a claim was instituted without probable cause, number one, that the suing party acted maliciously in instituting the action and the doctor was damaged by the action. So they said collectively it's not that easy to, to counter sue and, and win anything. And so yeah, that is the, the end of this that article. 
I was going to say, what are the chances that you get anything out of that? You know, are the people that are suing you, do they have a lot of money to give you back for your <laughs> uh, emotional that's distress? True. That's true. Probably not. No, hey, it, it's very, that would be very unusual. And I looked at almost 2,000 cases in my career, medical legal career. I never saw that successful. I never saw it successful once. Why? Because it is a process that has to go on. And I, I think the courts would be very slow uh, well, to think they, they could, could cut that, that revenue stream off. Given the fact that the person doesn't have any money, even if you win, I think a decent lawyer is going to say, listen, don't go down our path, just walk away. Right. Um, we are done, guys. We are out of time. Uh, Greg, uh, do you have a wine of the month that you'd like I to do. I do. Uh, as I have uh, mentioned uh, on the last couple of uh, issues, I am dismantling my wine cellar. And so I'm, I'm, I'm taking some of the uh, fine old bottles. We have, we have opened a... Um, a, a, a Haute Ferron de Pomerel 2001, France, of course. And uh, this, is, this is held up exactly the way the experts thought. Uh, I bought into this when it was uh, about a tenth what it is a bottle today. And uh, particularly the reds, whites don't hold up the same way. But this uh, uh, Pomerel, the the um, Haute Ferronde, has been is magnificent. If you can find it, if you've got people who have it hidden in the cellar, or you have a uh, a wine uh, steward who helps you with these things, <laughs> this is a terrific purchase. Greg, if it's not at Costco, I don't want it. I <laughs> Rick, I understand <laughs> that, and I'm not against that. But we have the occasional listener who wants something maybe a little better. I got you. Yeah. Okay. Rachel, thanks for getting these cases together. Uh, yeah, of course. It was fun. Today. And uh, I appreciate you doing it. Yep. No problem. Uh, signing off, Greg, take it easy. We'll talk with you uh, next month, Rachel, as well. Uh, August issue. Actually, it's probably time to do August issue in a couple of days, actually. Yeah, yeah, actually. We're running late a little uh, this month, uh, folks, but we'll we'll catch up next month. That's uh, Ricky Cotter, Greg Henry, and Rachel signing off. Bye for now. <laughs>